Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today we meet the husband and wife team behind Cassava, a small Asian-inspired restaurant in San Francisco's Richmond neighborhood. Chef Chris Toliao and Yuka Yoroi met while working at a popular Asian fusion restaurant in Los Angeles. They fell in love and began dreaming about an opportunity to move to San Francisco. When the now-renowned Dominique Crenn, who had once hired Chris to work with her at a country club in Manhattan Beach, came calling with a new opportunity to join her team in San Francisco, Chris and Yuka couldn't say no. From there on out, their culinary lives changed forever. Let's have a listen. Thank you for joining us today. Could you introduce yourselves and your roles? My name is Chris, and I'm the uh, chef and owner of Cassava. Hi, and I'm Yuka Yoroi, and I am co-owner and then Chris's wife and um, the general manager of the restaurant. In your own words, could you describe what cassava is? Dining with our community. It's definitely an out of Richmond kind of restaurant. Uh, we started about four years ago and just built a community with cassava with just three tables, and now it's grown to... We have about 40 seats, 40 seats. inside yeah, and outside together. And outside, so yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. So how did um, how did the concept for cassava come about? <laughs> we were uh, Chris was ready to start something of his own, and then I was saying that if we find a place that has a big front window and two lane street that has meters, and possibly, and then he found he's like, oh, I found one. <laughs> so that's sort of your business requirement. We were like, you know, we thought that would be something good. And then there was a gentleman that had a, a small bakery. And we were like, okay, well, maybe this neighborhood wants a bakery. So we'll just sell bread like he was doing. But we'll start introducing um, his food a little at a time. Chris always wanted to have approachable food, the price point, but like food that's cooked with care and then like fine dining technique, you know, like he wanted like food to be not just for elite, but it's done with care and technique. We had the cafe first and then we started doing reservation only pop-up tasting dinners for about a year and a half. And then we expanded. Chef, what's your background and, and how did you get started in the food industry and where did you learn the fine dining um, techniques? I think it was more out of necessity. Cooking was something that I definitely liked. I'd live with my sister, she was my guardian, and I'd always helped out in the kitchen. I wanted to go to a four-year college, but affordability wasn't there. So I took culinary school, and I really didn't think that I would survive within the first week. But uh, 12 years later, you know, I'm sitting here uh, running a small restaurant. But it really started in LA. Met with Dominique Crenn about 10, 11 years ago, and just, you know, showed me a lot of different things and opened the doors on a lot of possibilities and she brought brought us up here and introduced San Francisco and we've always wanted to come to San Francisco and you know it even opened more things produce seafood you name it um, we're very privileged up here it's it's awesome and and what in Japan and, and Japan and yeah in Japan 2010 uh, Kikunoi the Kikunoi is a um, two-star restaurant in Tokyo and an original location in Kyoto has three stars and then he had a book from them. It's a kaiseki restaurant. And the Chef Murata, he's the third generation owner, owner of that restaurant. And then he's the one that really, really wants to spread that cuisine in the world. And he's very well regarded um, in the whole world. And then Chris had the book. And then he's like, oh, I wish I could go there. I was starved. And I was like, 
okay, well, I'll call them. And then I call them and they say, okay, you know. So that's how we went. And then he was there for two months. And the style of work is a little different here in the U.S., like urban cities. Like everything is really separated front and back. But Kikunoi, they get taught from scratch, like prep and bulk prep, and then eventually to like a different station. And then they also go to the front, do service. And then, and then Chris was like, oh, wow, like I feel like now I have an idea of what kind of restaurant I would want to have eventually. So that was a big turning point for him. So where are you both from and how did you two meet? Based in uh, in LA, uh, we met at this restaurant called Tiger Lily in Hollywood. She was a manager and I was a cook and it's just chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) that's very sweet. And what kind of restaurant was Tiger Lily? It was early 2000s, you know, the word uh, fusion was kind of fading off. It's pretty much what that was. Um, the owner was, you know, he was Indian. Actually, he was one of the one of the more influential people that have influenced us to run the restaurant because he was very, he had a gusto. That was his favorite word, gusto with a capital G. Simant Pardal, can never forget him, you know, coming in the kitchen, taking over with a cigarette in his hand, rolling up his sleeves and saying, all right, I got this. And he's just, they call him Tufan because I think that means like a, Typhoon. Typhoon. Yeah, like a storm. Um, and he's a typhoon, but he has this certain just bravado of him that just gives me the, you know, because I come from a fine dining world where everything's like, you know, oh, you know, everything has to be set like this. But for him, imp- improvisation was, you know, you got to make something out of nothing. And, and he did. That's pretty much what, we, what we're doing here at Cassava, you know, every day in, day out. But he understands a lot of spice. Yeah. That's like what Chris got a lot of training or it's like, wow, you can use it like this, you can use it like yeah, that. Yeah, so working with a lot of some spices I've never heard of, like asafoetida or, you know, ajuin. Not your typical, there's so much more of what spices are out there. Yeah, and I think LA yeah. was ready to kind of move on from wasabi mashed potatoes type of things. and. That was definitely a turning point, too, with a lot of culinary, like, trend-wise. So it was a big restaurant, about, probably, I don't know, four times the size of cassava. I don't know, maybe, like, 3,000 square feet. Yeah, so they could only fill in, like, quarter of it. But, you know, we've met a lot of people, a lot of friends. You know, that's where we met, so it's definitely a crucial point between our careers, so. Life. And life. Life first. (laughs) Is that how long had you, each of you, been in L.A. at that point, and what had brought you to Los Angeles? Um, I was born in Japan, and then I moved to uh, Glendale when I was 15. I was been, born here. Yeah, I was born in San Francisco, went back to the Philippines, and, then, and you know, ended up with my sister in Orange County. And then from Orange County, just working everywhere in LA, I think, kind of got us more exposed with LA area. Is there anything in particular about your experiences as children in Asia, in the Philippines and in Japan that you think you bring to cassava and to the food here. There's- Oh my God. (laughs) Can I tell you something? Yeah. So my second day of high school, they put me at a desk and I was like, okay. And the desk was wobbly. So I was like, okay, okay, well, I'm gonna try to fix it. And then I touched it and it was bumpy. I was like, why is it so bumpy? Ugh. And look under and these, I was like, so many gumps. I was, in, I was like, ugh, why? You know, like, I don't get it. You never see that in Japan. You're not even supposed to chew gums like in a right. school, you know, but it's disrespectful. And then, I don't know, in Japanese service, like, we, 
we have this thing like you try not to do things that destructive to other people not just in service but in general in public or like if the other person looks like needs something they try to guess what it is on our approach and then i realized that that's not really common here so that's why like you hear like you know wow like japan like service is so amazing they do all these things and then you kind of feel like a, like a genuine care from them you know they want to do it for you so that's kind of like what i bring and then we were lucky to have met people that work at cassava that kind of resonate with that idea mm-hmm. so i think that's definitely from a service point definitely more personable that kind of led to us building community like where we have really strong regular basis but then like we know about them that's great no i do do you have any memories of when you were taught that sort of respect and no well i mean okay so in elementary school between the last class and then like a meeting before you go home everybody in entire school for 15 minutes cleaned the school in different groups so like one week you're in charge of a hallway one week you're in charge of a floor and then so everybody have to bring in the dry towel and then a wet towel and then you make the beginning of a school like a trimester yeah and then you know you go up and down and do that and then you're taught yes you're taught to how to clean but it shows you that you need to treat the things that are providing you like education and stuff you don't really get it when you're little but like later on you understand it and is that very common with the schools there? So now, people are more entitled. Some people kind of started not getting it. So the people are complaining. It's like, why does my child have to clean the bathroom? Isn't that why you have a janitor? But now, so that happens. But um, no, but they want to keep it that way because like, a lot of people understand it. So like for me, coming to you know LA, and then I thought it was like Beverly Hills 102 and I was like, oh. <laughs> But then the school have a barbed wire and a security guard and metal detector in the front of the hotel. The side of LA, they don't show you in the movie. <laughs> no, right. they did not. Yeah. No, it's very racially segregated. So I was like, ah, wow, damn. But yeah, so it was, so definitely that's what I appreciate. And then you really taught manners. And then also social responsibility. Respect is like how to not be disrespectful, I think. And then you just have like a total lack of that. Maybe just in California, because people in South Sydney, like Nashville airport was so nice. And we were like, <gasps> you know, yeah. yeah. But yeah, definitely, I would say that. Yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of social differences, definitely. But yeah, I think especially in larger, wealthier cities, I think there's a much less sense of community. Yeah. And probably that sense of community is what helps people remember that what they do is actually affecting the people they live around. Right. Because I think that the bigger the city, the fewer the chances you're even going to see the same people again, so you feel yeah. sort of anonymous, and you maybe don't care as much. I don't know. That's kind of like nice about this side of San Francisco. They seem to get that little more... Yeah, it's very uh, neighborhoody out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a city within a city. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah a little community. Big, yeah. It's safer. Yeah, and it's closer to the beach, so... It's cool. <laughs> and this is also a very heavy Asian community out here. Yeah. A lot of Asian restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Chef, for you, what about your experiences in the Philippines? Have you brought over um, to your cooking? If I think I think I grew up very sheltered in the Philippines. Uh, come from a like a private Catholic school. You know, I was exposed to a lot more American things over there because. My mom and my grandpa, especially my grandpa and my grandma, they were very protective of me because I was the youngest one and they really didn't want me to get exposed with a lot of all the bad stuff that was happening in the Philippines, especially in the early 90s. I, that's when I came back, uh, 91. But the late 80s, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
the revolution with Cory Aquino. There was a big rally all along Edsa, Edsa Boulevard, and we were in that neighborhood. So there was a lot of like rioting going on and stuff like that. So they really wanted to protect me. So I saw a lot of people fending for themselves, uh, so to speak. My grandpa was very adamant that you know, education was first. He was actually an attorney, so he, was, he wanted to implement a lot of just learning, you know, learning a lot, learning from different people. You know, respect, he was, he was big on that. He was, he was a very much of a gentleman. You know, food-wise, I mean, the American things that I was exposed was, was cereal and, you know, just things that I guess were in the military bases there. Easy access things like canned goods, spam, stuff like that. I mean, Yuka, she, you know, she... Just not like spam, and you know, I grew up with it, you know, just because it was there. It was like it's a wartime food. And yeah, it's war- not fighting. It, Why it is. You can get fresh food. But um, every now and then, you know, you you get a craving, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not something I, I think of the first thing. But <laughs> street food wise, you know, you have it has the its place though. It's yeah, it definitely salty. has. It definitely has its place. Well, you know, it has that certain umami. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. In the Philippines, you see a lot of street food, like fish balls and sweet and sour sauce. You just dip it in a paper bowl. The fish balls, you know, come in like plastic wrappers, pretty much, and RC Coke. It's you have, you know, tapioca balls that are in like sweetened fizzy water. It was it was good to see a lot of different sides. Uh, we had a lot of different mix. Talking about fusion, you have like shopao, which is like a Chinese steam bun, pretty much that's filled with like you know pork meat and you have a Spanish influence you have like Chinese influence you have different spices from the Arab you know it's just in Manila at that time it was just like a fast pace it was a growing city so it was a lot of commerce going on so I saw I definitely saw a lot of ethnicities you know and just a lot of flavors growing up and then 91 and 2 coming here you know just just the shock because at the time, there was a lot of super supermarkets, Alpha Beta, Lucky's, uh, growing up in Bellflower, California. There was a lot of, um, it, was, it was LA, but not really. <laughs> so a lot of convenience things, you know. And, and at the time, fast food restaurants were just picking up with a lot of KFCs and things like that. And, but when my sister, when my brother-in-law cooks, you know, it was more from the heart, back to the roots, the Philippines, you know, he had the adobo, kare-kare, my favorite, the sisigs. And as a Filipino growing up, that, that's, that was my staple, you know. And Bellflower, it was uh, predominantly uh, Latinos. So, you know, I was exposed to that too. You have just taquerias, you're, uh, the guy selling Doritos, which is basically chips. These pinwheel-shaped uh, chips, you, you know, soak it up with lime, chili, corn, you know, fresh corn that you put mayonnaise and fake butter and fake Parmesan cheese and chili and wow. it was all was good. good. And that's all for a dollar. And right. I used to fill myself <laughs> up with that. Lucas, which is basically this spice mix. It's like a tamarind pulp and spice and you just eat that. Just a lot of things going on and to me I was just exposed to a lot of things and mm. you know, just multiculturally it was it was it was great. So Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, the Philippines also has a lot of Spanish influence yeah. on the on the food, which oh, yeah. also obviously has influence on Mexican oh, yeah. um, cooking. So, did you like recognize any of those? Oh, all the time. Yeah, um, the the most obvious one is the adobo. That's as you know, Spain and Mexico, and then Philippines oh, really? with their own twist. Yeah, so it's. It's a great dish, you know, it's my favorite, but I don't think I can cook it as well as, you know, my mom, my grandpa. We have a, I have a friend here that works with us, Noel, and I made one for him, you know, and he disapproved of it <laughs> so bad because, you know, he's like, what are you doing? You're 
convening the, the chicken leg for 24 hours and you're making sous vide out of this and you're reducing the sauce. Just put it all together, you know. <laughs> so it's true, you know, you can't really make something that's like comfort and hearty and make it into like something refined and there's some things that you just can't twist, you know. It should be just straight up from the heart and what, what you grew up on. Cassava, you know, I don't know the name oh, of yeah, this place. Oh yeah, let's say when we picked the name. Stable dish, uh, stable dessert, one of my favorites growing up, also came from, I think I think it was Spanish. It's African too. Yeah, and Indonesian from what I read somewhere, but it's, it definitely has that mix of a lot of things. What is a cassava dessert? Cassava dessert. Uh, it's a bibinka dish. It consists of like coconuts, sugar, and salt. Potato salt. Yeah. 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 Um, it's uh, it's cooked in a banana leaf, but it has this nutty, just very like the texture is just just amazing. I think if it's cooked really well, it does well. But if it's like overcooked, the egg becomes like too grainy. I haven't made it here yet. Yeah, I, I haven't made it here yet. Um, <laughs> We did sure. at the beginning, people have asked us, you know, a lot of Filipino moms have asked us, we did, but, <laughs> you know, I think the name was just there because it resembled both of us, you know, it's a symbolic thing. Because I was uh, another name for a yucca root. A yucca root. Oh. Yeah. Nice. So we thought, like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Chef Chris Toliao and Yuka Yoroi of Cassava. Chris, how did you end up getting into restaurants and cooking as a career? I really like cooking with my brother-in-law and my sister as a kid, whether it be like just cutting a chicken leg or cutting up onions. She didn't even hesitate to Give me the knife. <laughs> just give me the knife and just told me, you know, here, just make this. I really like that, but I didn't think of anything. I think. And how old were you at that point? Uh, I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and at the time, things were great in the house. And by the time I was 16, you know, I'd already moved out, and I was always looking towards the future. You know, like for my my grandpa told me, knowledge is everything. But when it comes to what you need to do in order to like make a living. I thought that, you know, okay, I like cooking, and I took my best friend, Aldo, Aldo Bravo, with me. To culinary school? Yeah, to culinary school, and, you know, after that, he's still cooking till this day, and we never look back. We just laugh at the days that, you know, we were like, wow, you know, I can't believe we survived. And why because, is that you, you mentioned? Um, I think it's because there was a lot of glamour entailed with being a chef. We we were always, you know, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't afford the cable at the time so the food network was like not even we, we've heard of it but it was like <laughs> 2003 was like you know it was like a very it was a good point for the food network yeah because at the, the, at the uh, Cordon Bleu in Pasadena they would always have that big screen TV with food network 24-7 we're like wow that's a beautiful picture look at that look at those you know bell peppers they're cutting it's really nice but we really didn't really pay attention to that because we were just focused on you know how the hell we're gonna cover our tuition fee after mm-hmm. <laughs> after culinary school it's so much you know, so I think our first week, I mean, our first day, we were like an hour late to our sanitation class. Commuting from Anaheim to Pasadena, it was like a, wow. it was like a, you know, an hour and a half with traffic commute. So, you know, <laughs> it's funny now, but looking back, it was like, oh my God, you know, this is the end of my life. And we were both working two jobs at the time as like two 18-year-old kids. <laughs> and then we decided to just move to Pasadena to make it easier. But um, with, I think with him, it just definitely like helped me. We motivated each other. You kind of just like, all right, we challenge each other. Just kind of do better. Our first week of intro one, you know, we didn't think we were going to survive. 
because it was just a downright gritty. They were, we were getting burned, we were getting pots thrown at us and stuff like that. I mean, there were definitely drill sergeants, our culinary instructors, which is good because, you know, we wouldn't have made it without all that standard being placed on us. And then just after Inchuan, for some reason, it just got easier because we thought it would be better to just do what we're told. And, you know, and, 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 and uh, cooking was definitely, uh, it stuck to us, rooted to our, you know, our backgrounds. What all those moms said and what my grandma's mom said about survival and those things. And we were getting food, so <laughs> we didn't have to literally eat afterwards. After, <laughs> But um, we were enjoying it, you know, we were just exposed to a lot of flavors. Like, I remember having my first bulgogi. I was like, wow, this is interesting. It's really good. The meat's so tender. And how do you cook it? You know, what's the, how is it tender? You know, that kind of stuff. We start asking ourselves. And there was a lot of people that enrolled in culinary school at the first few months. And then after our graduation, you know, I think it was 300 that enrolled and then half didn't really pass. And then five years after that, you know, I don't even think like 10 people are still in the industry. You know, I thought, we thought ourselves that we would have to go, go back to a, a university or a college or something. And we stuck through it until the, this day. So how did you then end up getting connected to Dominique Crenn and the San Francisco um, community? I think I saw an ad when I was in culinary school, an ad that she had put out. And I was working with Julian Baker, who's another great chef. It was actually the first restaurant I ever professionally ever worked at. He's also another person that influenced me. The restaurant, unfortunately, was closing down in Biche, and I had to move fast and find another restaurant, and I found that and From Manhattan. From Manhattan Beach. At the time, there was no Google Maps, so it was very hard for me to, like, you know, kind of navigate, but it was just like, wow, this is really far, so, but, you know, I got to go anyway. So I went and went, you know, knocked on her door, and Dominique, she just opened a lot of doors with just exploring different flavors and her having a strong-rooted uh, French background. She gave us a lot of testing grounds. I uh, worked with her for two years at the country club, two, two and a half years, before going to uh, Tiger Lily, where you and I met. While working at Tiger Lily for two years, I was in 06, 07. Late 07, I got a call from Dominique saying that she's working at the Intercontinental Aluche. And I kind of hesitated because I was starting a new job at, uh, at the really Beverly Hills Hotel, and I was liking it. But then I was like, you know, San Francisco. We I was really yeah, see a culinary future in, in LA. In LA at then. the time. Yeah. Now there is, but you know, so we're like, okay, well, let's go try. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've always wanted to go to San Francisco. And we've always taken trips to San Francisco. Coming up here, is, everything just changed. We were homesick for a little bit because of the, the weather, summer <laughs> weather. So what we really dislike in LA too and here too is such a, you know, racial segregation in the back in the front or the back of the house. It's true, you know, like we're not going to lie. And why is that that as a bartender, yeah, like I might wash my glasses, but I might not wash all the plates that come back, and then I get, you know, $200 a night. But I'm, I didn't make the food, I didn't run the food, but I get so much more. And it just, but it's not right, you know, it's, it's not the way. So in restaurants in Japan, probably in Europe too, because the service fees and tips are not such a big part of income, they're on salary. So jobs are kind of paid the same, if not, Chefs are probably paid more because mm -hmm. you're doing more, you know, definitely than just taking orders, you know. Right. Um, and then also, I really didn't like that the dishwashers are kind of looked down upon. There is definitely classism. It's not. I don't think it's racism, but it's almost like institutionalized classism, you know. Mm -hmm. And then when I decided to open a place, I didn't want anybody to look down on any of our staff. So. The way we hire is that we hire everybody from dishwasher position 
and in the first three months, we'll look, is this person better for service? Is, better, is this person better for cooking? And then we kind of eventually train the person towards that side. We all run food. I work the line sometimes. I do beverage, I do service. There are a lot of us like that, that do all positions. And then yeah, we still wash dishes. So when the new person comes in just washing dishes, no one's gonna just slam it and then leave. That's not the way because you know how it feels to be done that to you, you know. Mm-hmm. And then and then I like that. And also I feel like if I'm paying now what thirteen dollars an hour and then we never wanna pay minimum wage, so we usually try to pay a little more, like we pay like thirteen, twenty, probably thirteen fifty, whatever. If I'm paying that same amount, why should I pay that to a person that can only do one job? If the person can do multiple, then my thirteen fifty will go longer. But it's just all in, you know, training and then getting out of that mind frame. Do you think this has any connection to your upbringing in Japan? Oh, yeah, definitely. The way- yeah. No, the jobs are not really looked down upon, especially, especially like a janitorial jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you read this, but um, so there's bullet train in Japan. Have you heard of it? Um, they make maybe each station, they make maybe like, I don't know, maybe like seven to ten minutes stop. Mm-hmm. And there's a team of like five women or something like that going and, and then they clean, you know, it's crazy. And then they're so professional that I think Harvard like made um, a class about it, you know. And then they're able to, do, and no one really looks down upon them because it's a cleaning job. But they're professional in their own way. So like, so we really didn't want to have no jobs or beneath any job, you know. You're better at it. Okay, so you're doing that. So there's one guy that's been working with us for like, a year and a half. Yeah, he came in as a dishwasher, and he's really fast with dishes. And he was a little nervous in service, but they noticed that he really likes about wine. Okay, fine, he has a good palate. So fine, then I'll you know I'll train you more for wine. Then he likes talking about it. He likes opening bottles, being pretty at the table. But he doesn't mind going right back to washing dishes, you know. Uh-huh. And then I asked him to help me with that because I know that he is faster than me than me doing that, and then it's just more efficient, you know. And then I think it's okay. And no one's really looking at, oh, he's just a dishwasher. No one says that. You know? Right. So so what's been the most challenging thing about opening cassava and having run it for four years now? Um, standards, I guess. We have an image of cassava, you know, neighborhood restaurant, you know. I think the challenge is that we're always, always learning. And now that I think we're possibly thinking about another location, it's it's a it's a great problem to have but because we're so personable i think a lot of people are coming to eat his food chris's food so him not being there and then cooking somewhere else might be a little bit of a thing and then also that because all the chefs you know like now we have a few chefs that are cooking next to him because they never really cooked anywhere else so he doesn't really have anybody that he can like balance ideas back and forth some part is great about it you know because like there are the cultures that we don't want to bring in here, but then sometimes he feels like, oh, I wish you know I had like Aldo next to me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that will that's that's a little that's challenging. You learn from just standing on your own two feet, pretty much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Thank you thank today, you. sharing your story. <laughs>
You just heard our 37th episode. We're well on our way to having recorded almost 50 episodes, so we have a lot of great new stories coming your way. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do with Menu Stories. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram. We're at Menu Stories. And on Twitter, we are at Menu underscore Stories. Subscribe to Menu Stories on MenuStories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox complete with pictures and videos per story. Or you can subscribe to the audio podcast only on iTunes. This episode was edited by Siska Marcus, produced and photographed by yours truly, and all the beautiful video work was crafted by Patrick Wong. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating.